Welcome to episode six of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86, and this week we pick up where we left off in episode five, part two of our GDA-focused visit with three members of the Gonzaga Dramatic Association Hall of Fame. Alan Latois, who just retired from Gonzaga in 2020, member of the class of 73. Roger Schlegel, member of the class of 83, current Gonzaga faculty member and still a big part of what happens with the GDA, my classmate Paul Buckley from the class of 86. As we paused last week's conversation, Alan had just mentioned how the Newsies cast that didn't get to perform in 2020, it had finally clicked. I can't remember a show that was more difficult to put all three of the parts together, the singing, the acting, and the dancing. It took forever for everything to come together, and it was finally doing it. When we ran the first dress rehearsal, which was the last performance that we ran, it was there. When they took ownership like that, that to me was the coolest moment. It had come together in that kind of magical way that that things do. And we were looking forward to coming back for the Wednesday rehearsal and we were told we couldn't do it. Roger, did you ever experience anything where it didn't click in time? I've never not seen it. I think it was Alan's puppet shows. Oh, the puppet shows. I forgot about those. All right, Alan, you got to explain the story behind the puppet shows. Something had happened with, with one of the shows. Someone who was not a lifetime GDA person said something on stage. He changed the script. And he, so he added some words, one of which was not an entirely appropriate word. Roger and I came up with the idea that we needed to ad- address this, but we wanted to do it in a fun way. So we created the puppet show. And so before the kids went on stage, we talked about like 10 ways they could ruin their show. And we would take a table put it on the side and we'd sit behind the table and we would grab whatever was at hand, really, uh, socks and gloves and props and things like that. We would go through, you can ruin your show by one puppet would say and Roger would have the other puppet and go talking over the other person when it's their line. And then, you know, we would stop that or we would, we would. Oh, somebody dropped something on the floor. Just keep dancing around it for the entire act. <laughs> keep looking at it and pointing it out to the audience that it's there. <laughs> Do not pick it up. And the kids would laugh. And then we would talk about various, uh, perhaps, things that they had done during rehearsals. You know, make sure you do this step instead of that step. And so they would know who we were talking about. And they would go, ah! <laughs> and uh, just do what you've been directed to do. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. Everybody's expecting you to do, to, to say this word instead of the inappropriate word. So just, just say this word and <laughs> it, it'll, all be, it'll all be fine because uh, you're not going to throw someone else off or throw off the timing of something. Or They usually took it in a pretty good spirit. They started to look forward to it. Are we going to have a puppet show? That's the thing that I thought was always so wonderful about the tradition of our theater was that John King and John Warman made it a program where it was not about being self-conscious and thinking it was about your performance. You know, it was a gift. It was what, what translated across the edge of the stage into the darkness. That was what mattered, you know. A show is a gift you make to an audience. Mm-hmm. And that got, that got us around the ego problem. It's, uh-huh. it's not about any one person. Nobody wants a lousy gift. Mm-hmm. So... That was the lesson that Doc Warman and 
at the time, Mr. King, it didn't matter if you were the 86th person in the cast way back in the corner, or even if you were off stage giggling, you were ruining the show or you were making the show. And it's really true. Roger, let's dig in a little bit deeper into the impact of the late John Warman, Class of 57, and also Brother John King. They were such a dynamic duo for so many years when it came to the Gonzaga Dramatic Association. What do you remember as some of the tricks they would use to get the best out of a cast? I remember um, John Warman. It took a few years before I figured out that this was a very deliberate planned thing he would do. It would be in the last two, three days. He had kept his eyes open for a few weeks and he decided, I'm going to pick this one spot and tell them that it just simply doesn't work. It didn't even matter what it was because there were all kinds of loose edges at that point, all kinds of songs where they they go on the first syllable when they were all supposed to, you know, all 40 voices were supposed to just come in firm and clear and convicted with the first word. And he would just say, okay, stop right there. Stop. And you're like, not now this is the dress rehearsal you can't stop the dress rehearsal. no we're stopped and then it could be like 20 25 minutes of of just excruciating again 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 no 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 kids kids might be in tears but the thing was he was making the point like there's good enough and there's excellent this is supposed to be excellent john king did the same thing with choreography yeah Yeah. he was like your foot's got to get to this level up here so they made they made you care now the three of you work together in various roles on a lot of different productions for those who maybe never were a part of gda when you were there why do you think it works so well for you three alan is the consonant teacher like you always made the point this is my classroom i think that's what it was was it didn't matter what someone needed to do big or little but if they could do it well it just felt so great alan you should talk about how you figured out the triangles thing with the locking oh gosh we called it uh, the double cross. Double cross, yeah. Audiences like to see movement on stage, but they don't. you don't want to make it too big because then their eye will follow that movement and not pay attention to the script, to what people are saying. It was during somebody's eyes in Footloose. All these kids are surrounding the character in the center and they all move in on this character, but they don't move straight in. One character goes this way and another goes that way. And then the next character goes this way and the other one comes up behind. Like that game where you shoot pennies across a table and you have to shoot between two pennies. uh, Except that we did it with 65 kids. (laughs) (laughs) And we took each pair of them and moved them. And it's, it's one of the coolest little effects so that anytime somebody would say, well, you know, uh, he wasn't at the store when it was robbed. And the two policemen go, who? And the audience goes, oh, that's cool. It just heightens the effect of it. Oh. There's another really simple thing, which is that whenever you wanted to have people talk to each other in this intense, there's two kinds of intensity. One is great distance from each other, like at opposite corners of the stage. And one is like face-to-face, especially if it's a romantic face-to-face you could never get them believably close. You know what I'm talking about? Because it's awkward, you know? Yeah. One day we said, don't even worry about getting close to him. Just make sure your toes are touching. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's incredibly convincing. But, <laughs> you know, you know I, I said before that it was, there was always a seat of the pants quality about it. And I, I don't know about Roger, but I always used to tell people, I, I had no formal theater training. 
until 2013 that I, I took a sabbatical. I went to George Mason. I took five classes. I, I learned some stuff that was valuable. And, you know, but by then I'd done 30 shows or whatever. I had to figure out how to, how to do that. I, I mean, I said to John Woman once, I said, you got to let me cut my teeth. You, you got to let me learn how to do this stuff and make mistakes. And he was generous in that regard. But we, a lot of times, if you want uh, to create intensity, if you, kids don't, they don't even have to look at each other. If you've got one character who's downstage of another and the one in the back says, I know where you were that night. And they're both looking at the audience. That's incredibly intense because the set of eyes that you want seeing those reactions are not on stage. They're the ones in the seats. Now, Alan, over the last two decades, a lot of new faces and some very talented female faces have been a big part of the success of the Gonzaga Dramatic Association. How did that all get started? Everybody realized that Roger and I were really not going to make great choreography. <laughs> and so when we did the first 42nd Street, we hired David Covington from AU. He was, so he was a student of dance at AU. And that eventually got us hiring through pretty much through CU. And not only uh, the choreographers, but also our current musical director, Marika uh, Contouris. And that was a great innovation, I think, on our part too, to bring some new ideas and some new blood in there. And I mean, and these, these kids are all th musical theater backgrounds, and they were able to see things uh, in these shows that. Again, the, the untrained here, they brought in new ideas for what shows to do so that, you know, the more recent shows, the ones I mentioned, you know, like Hairspray and SpongeBob, Beauty and the Beast and all of that. We weren't taught to think along those lines uh, from our time at Gonzaga. It was more the, the traditional canon of those shows. And Another big person in that was Megan Goldsmith because, you know, she, she was in Singing in the Rain. She was one of the hot box dancers in Singing in the Rain. And then I think it was, I want to say it was either Coconuts or 42nd. And it was like whatever her senior year show was, and she couldn't do it. But Billy Flanagan had been kind of like a I say stage manager, assistant director type in the fall. But he didn't want to do that in the spring. He wanted to be back in the show. And so Megan jumped aboard. And so she was kind of like the assistant during her senior year show. And then when she graduated, she had done such a good job. Like, hey, you want to come back? And I think it took a year because she was at Maryland taking classes. But then when she came in, the whole production aspect of it got so much better because she had such a skill set crossing over from experience on the stage. She had the technical knowledge and then she had all these producer skills. And so that's when we, we just, you know, with all this talent that we had in the adult portion of it, we were started able to do so much more with them. You were able to activate parents who were just, just incredibly supportive and very willing to lend a hand without in any way, like taking over or getting into the space of the, of the showmakers. It was just, it was really brilliant the way you did that, Paul. There were so many gracious people who at every stage of how the thing developed. And I mean, I haven't been involved for over 10 years and it's just, it's continued to be amazing and to grow in different ways. But at every stage, there were these like just God's gift, like gracious, wonderful souls who were just right for their humility, their willingness to work with what there was. Like, you know, I could name the, I'm looking at the cast list for the first year we we were directing and like Leah Rinaldi, who just like she just showed up. Where did she come from? Total pizzazz, yeah. giving it her all. People like Matt Balcom, Andrew Curtin, you know, they knew how to pull this group together and say, hey, maybe the directors don't quite know what they're doing, but 
This is great, isn't it? Isn't this great? You think it showed? <laughs> so as Gonzaga celebrates its bicentennial and the theater itself celebrates its 125th birthday this month, are there some traditions that today's students do that maybe students back in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, 90s weren't doing? The whole kissing the stage thing. I have never kissed the stage, but that's such a thing now. They have all these traditions now that none of this happened like when we were there, like on the closing night performance that the seniors would basically, you know, it's kissing the, the theater goodbye because this is their last performance on the stage. So on closing night, after the, the final cast bow, we would have the stage would come out, get their, their bow, and then they'd also turn in seniors, seniors, and all your seniors would, would walk out and they would all just get down and they would get on their knees and they would literally kiss the stage floor. And it's a great moment. It's really cool. I, the one year I thought, I, I suggested, hey, maybe we should like not do it. I got totally shot down remember that yeah. yeah and then there's there's a kind of a pre pre-show huddle ritual is that still happening yeah. oh yeah oh it's grown it's grown into so much like there's there's the prayer circle there's the the senior speeches and they've got a whole system set up where like you know on the last night it's the seniors who have done like eight shows or maybe seven or eight shows and the the pre-performance is like the five or six show seniors and then the first night, it's those scenes who just came in for this one show and their intermission thing where like all the girls go into one room and all the guys go into another and they're yelling and screaming. And now stage has developed their own little thing beforehand. And now even house crew has developed their own little thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know what? Especially- if it makes it that much more of an experience for them, go for it. Traditions and rituals are important. It's a way that we can remember the people we were with. It's almost like the playbills. Roger, you've got quite a stack of playbills there. I've got all my programs here, you know, and I just, there's so many amazing singers we've had. I just, Eileen Cuff, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Jess Weidel. Um, it just goes on and on. But the thing was, it was, I was always particularly struck by the people who had like one song or didn't have any real like classic singing ability, but they just attacked the thing. And I, I remember when we did um, Shakespeare, As You Like It, Greg Mullenholtz was the merry leader of the forest guys. Mm-hmm. And there's music in that play and we made up tunes for it. And I'll just never forget the way he, he just totally went for it. He belted out these nonsensical ditties from the 1600s and just own them. It was a beautiful thing. I remember when I was in plays, Chris Wood singing uh, Golden Helmet of Mambrino in Man of La Mancha. It's those those character songs that, was it John Healy who was in Pajama Game? Pajama Game, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that performance. You know, the time clock, man. He just completely sold it. Now, across the years, gentlemen, I imagine there have been students who have come up to you years later and reminisced about the impact of being in the GDA and what it meant to them, uh, maybe at a smoker or a reunion. Alan, any memories that stick out for you? Yeah, it was, it was usually a senior who said, why didn't I do this before? Mm-hmm. And it was so uh, sadness almost in it. Why didn't I do this before? It was always there. It was sitting right in front of me. And, and I didn't take advantage of it. They just loved what had happened on the opening night and they they couldn't wait for the other nights and, and looking back over the whole rehearsal thing that they, they just had such a great great time i remember richie pettibone who was in our, our second production of footloose and of course richie was a three-star all-met athlete he played 
football at Alabama, for heaven's sakes. He had always wanted to do a show and he had been on WZG. And so we knew we had a personality. So we're like, hey, come do a show. You know, he was also on the varsity basketball team and he was also playing varsity lacrosse. So I go, how do we make this work? But we did. We Somehow we made it work. That was the year where opening night got snowed out. Wow. Right? So our, our first, our opening night ended up being on a Saturday. And Saturday night's crowd was, was packed, like 800 people. I remember afterwards, uh, Richie was speaking at like the Gridiron Club because he was getting an honor for football. And he, and he said this to this sports crowd. Like he, he had played in, in stadium after stadium, big game after big game. And the most nervous he had ever been in his life was that opening night performance he was ready to throw up he was so nervous and i thought that is so cool what about you roger anyone come up to you that just stands out in your mind kyle forrester he came up to me the, the most recent smoker he said mr schlegel you taught me something i'll never forget it was some some show that mr latois was directing you weren't even directing but you came in one day you were sitting in the seats and you said kyle there's cheese on a plate in front of you for the whole scene Eat the cheese. Eat the cheese. The audience doesn't want you to look at the cheese. Eat it. It's there for you. And he said, for the rest of my life now, I'm very successful, whatever. You know, he goes, whenever I'm in like a high pressure situation, I just say to myself, just eat the cheese. Wow. That is a slogan for life. Just eat the cheese. Thank you, Kyle. All right, Paul, Saturday, October 16th, if folks are listening to this before... Uh, you'd love for them to come down to the Sheehy Theater as Gonzaga celebrates its bicentennial with a special performance. Again, it'll be a celebration, but it'll be a celebration not just of the GDA, but of all the sort of performing arts at Gonzaga over the years. So it'll include GDA, but it'll also include, you know, all, all the music bands that have come out of there. It'll include the actors who've gone on to television and theater and movies. It'll include a history of WZAG and people have gone into radio and, and things like that. And so the dancers that we've had. So it's going to focus on performers for others. Well, Paul Allen and Rogers, Southwest Airlines willing, I will be there Saturday night. Thank you so much for making the time to uh, share these memories of the Gonzaga Dramatic Association. Thanks for setting it up, uh, Brian and Paul. Yeah. Alan, thank, it's, it's great to see you. thank you, Paul. Good seeing you. Before we put a wrap on episode six of this GDA-focused two-part visit, I want to welcome Father Joe Lingen with some of his thoughts about the Gonzaga Dramatic Association. In a recent conversation I had with Paul Buckley, he referred to the GDA as a varsity sport, and I could not agree with him more. To all of you who have performed on this stage, thank you so very much, and most especially to the young ladies from our sister schools from around the Washington, D.C. area. You have made the Gonzaga Dramatic Association just a remarkable, remarkable part of the high school experience. Thank you so very, very much. Father, what were some of the productions that you will never forget from your time as a student on I Street? My recollection of the, the productions when I was in school were they were phenomenal. When the two that were most outstanding in my memory were Damn Yankees and Hello Dolly. Those plays were fantastic and made you want to be on that stage. Doc Borman and John King did a phenomenal job back then. Some of the performers that I remember in uh, Damn Yankees was Jim Knowles and Doug Free and Hello Dolly. Jim Curtin, I think, was in that play, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, without doubt, the choreography with that wonderful scene of welcoming Dolly back was just phenomenal, just great. But the, it was the stage crew that did such a phenomenal job with the staging of Hello, Dolly. 
they had uh, they built an extension onto the stage and they had a magnificent lighting of the stage that would that would go up during and down during the performance there's Father Joe Lingen, your 37th president of Gonzaga, with some of his memories that, as you heard there at the end, focused on stage crew and what they were able to accomplish to make some of these productions come alive. Now, if you're a GDA alum and you really were a part of stage crew or ground crew or lighting and you feel like we didn't get enough attention in this episode, Mr. Egan, ah, let's get to John Cosgrove to balance that out. To this day, my chest swells with pride whenever I talk about stage crew. During my time at Gonzaga, I worked at the elbow of the greatest of the greatest production team, Dr. John Warman and brother John King. In 1987, we produced The Wizard of Oz. Now, for most of your audience, the lore surrounding the 1987 production of The Wizard of Oz is all true, by the way. It's all it's all true. It was the most spectacular production in the 200-year in the history of Gonzaga <laughs> Dramatic Association, and I'm only halfway kidding. In that production of The Wizard of Oz, we actually did all costumes, all lighting, all sets, all in black and white for the first portion of that play. And then a great tornado came. All of the lights went out in the theater, and when all of the lights came up, all of those sets were in gorgeous uh, technicolor through the masterful eyes of James Garcia, who was the stage manager, and Michael McDonald, who was the ground crew manager, supported by a crazy loft and light crew. Along my elbow was the one and only flight manager in the history of Gonzaga stage crew, and that was Brother Joe Ritzman. And I need to explain what a flight manager was. As part of the amazing production, there was black and white sets, there were color sets, there were tornadoes, there were everything, but there were also flying monkeys. We had somehow rigged, they tell me it was safe, somehow rigged 60 feet above the stage, and each flying monkey, of which there were originally five, but in rehearsal, it turned out we couldn't fly five at a time because monkey number four and monkey number five kept smashing into each other. So we flew four. My recollection was that three of them were freshmen because of their body weight, but the fourth was a senior named Ted Kelly who had absolutely no business being a flying monkey. You know, he was a senior, so he gave him the nod. Anyway, each monkey actually had two student members of the stage crew on the end of their ropes. And with their body weight down to the floor, the monkey would go up. And when the stage crew member would what we call church bell the kid, <laughs> the monkey would go back and forth. That particular, no kidding, that particular scene, every performance uh, would get a standing ovation. Thank you, John Cosgrove. And I imagine many more ovations are coming in the Sheehy Theater in 2021 and 2022. Uh, in fact, Saturday the 16th, the 200th celebration will be taking place. In some future episodes that we're working on, we're going to be celebrating some of the women who have elevated the Gonzaga Dramatic Association over the last couple decades. Names like Megan Goldsmith and Jay-Z Zesky and more. Next week in Episode 7, we venture into the spiritual aspect of the Gonzaga experience. Student leaders, faculty members, and more will be putting on the 162nd Kairos Retreat.
how exactly did the Kairos program come to be at Gonzaga? It's not like there hadn't been retreats before that had long been a part of the Jesuit education. But Kairos became something special. In fact, its success at Gonzaga became a model, not just for other Jesuit schools, but other Catholic schools as well. We'll talk about it with Father John Cicero, who was there at the beginning, also with John Cosgrove. That's next week in Episode 7. Again, thanks for all the feedback. You can shoot me an email, podcast at gonzaga.org. Make sure you're following, subscribing, and sharing with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time... Ad maiorium dei glorium, and hail Gonzaga. March, remember, victory, Gonzaga.